Kent Garrett, welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. There were 18 of us in the Harvard College class of 1963. We were born in the 1940s and are now 80 years old. We entered Harvard as Negroes, but graduated as Blacks and African Americans. Our guest is Clara Mate. She is an assistant professor at the economics department of the New School for Social Research in New York City. Her new book is titled The Capital Order, How Economists Invented Austerity and Paved the Way to Fascism. I'm joined by 17 of my Harvard classmates. Well, I'm in Spain, so I'm suffering. We're suffering the, the same kinds of climate change as you are, Clara. Uh, it it just it, it was 24 degrees here today. This is ridiculous. Okay. You know, people are on the beach. I was a sociologist and teaching sociology for a number of years, but I'm now writing fiction, um, and uh, mainly about the kinds of social changes that you're addressing as an economist. Bill Collins, uh, Harvard 63, 20 years in the Navy, retired working on. I was a nuclear power guy in the Navy, and I've worked on for a while on nuclear waste cleanup and hazardous waste and so on now retired living in Aiken South Carolina with my wife okay <laughs> I I'm a, a book editor and writer and I live up in northern New Hampshire in the White Mountains here there's a big ski area up here in northern New Hampshire and uh but we don't have much snow either. Hi, my name is Allison Wardlow, class of 63. And I've been, I'm particularly interested in um, Clara's speech today because I've been living in Italy now for 53 years, oh. since 1970, first in Milano, and then now for 40 years in, um, in Tuscany, in Rada in Chianti. And actually, I'm quite interested in hearing about the fascism, also because you, it's not talked about, as you, I'm sure you know here yeah. very yeah. much, it's too yeah. controversial and uncomfortable. Uh, so yeah. people don't normally, you don't normally hear much about it. <laughs> so I'm, and I'm, I've ordered your book already. Yeah. Thank you. Terry. <laughs> Good morning. I'm in Pasadena, California, and there is snow in California if you want to come ski. So lots. <laughs> yeah, about uh, eight feet up at uh, Mammoth Mountains right now. So I'm an environmental lawyer. I spent a couple of years in the Peace Corps in Peru, worked for the federal government, state government, oil company, Audubon, California, and uh, am still kind of semi-retired at this point. Okay, Marcy. <clears throat> Um, <clears throat> I run Clean Air Campaign and it's Open Rivers Project in New York City, which watchdogs city, state and federal budgets in order to press for fairer, wiser public spending priorities. And I'm now um, working to um, organize an archive and deal with major repositories in a way that's not fair to low budget organizations and, and creates archives in this country 
which reflect uh, the priorities of the wealthy. John Woodford here in Ann Arbor, morning, Michigan. John. I'm in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and I've um, been uh, writing and editing, but I'm e eager to get your book because it looks as if you're confirming all of my uneducated hunches about the use of uh, the ideological use of the dismal science <laughs> or pseudoscience, as the case may be. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Hamp. Hampton Howell, Nashville, Tennessee. I'm uh, I'm a clinical psychologist. I'm still working. Before I used to do encounter groups, and I was an anti-poverty pimp for a while. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm particularly interested in today's talk because uh, I think there's a lot of stuff about capitalism that's awful. Period. Uh, my name is Doug Shapiro. I live in uh, Louisville, Kentucky. I grew up in Houston. Uh, uh, I've lived in seven different countries, the most interesting of which was a small island in the Indian Ocean called Aldabra, uh, which at the time I was there was part of the British Indian Ocean territories. Uh, it's an atoll with a large central lagoon. And one of the interesting things about this little uh, island is that um, it has more sharks living in the lagoon than it has people living on shore. Wow. <laughs> Okay, Spencer. Hi, I'm Spencer Jourdain, and I'm in uh, class of 61. Well, I'm, uh, I guess I am still in the class, yeah. Uh, <laughs> we had our 60th reunion. <laughs> uh, I am uh, uh, <clears throat> the first part of my uh, post-college life in uh, uh, Black economic development, and the second half of my uh, post-college uh, career in sustainable development. David Allen here in Concord, Mass. Uh, I like to say I've had a pastiche of a life, uh, new ventures early on, uh, academic life in the middle there. In recent decades, um, really activist is the short description. Uh, since I have long felt that uh, austerity measures were uh, outrageous and absurd, uh, given their impact on the greater bulk of the population. I am so looking forward to your informed work upon this, particularly since I've been accused of being an economist along the way. From yeah. <laughs> <laughs> David, David Lelleville. I'm David Lilliveld. I'm uh, class of 63. I'm, uh, by the way, I, I just have a new hearing aid and I am having a, tr a hard time uh, adjusting to the sound of my own voice. Uh, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I hope that uh, it sounds natural to you. Uh, I live in Washington Heights in New York City. I'm a historian of India, uh, mostly in uh, pre-independence time, but I follow India closely and am uh, much concerned with uh, the relationship between what was introduced as so-called liberalization in the uh, 1990s and has developed into something that is a full, full flowering of uh, uh, fascism there now. Okay, Nick. <laughs> Nick Bancroft, outside of uh, Boston, Medfield, Mass, uh, class of 63 with these guys, Harvard Business School, directly into the Peace Corps in India for two years. Um, and I, at that time, 
um, believed in um, believed in small industries uh, being developed, helped develop them. So in India, I was with a program to uh, help small companies get going. And uh, my belief at that time was that um, the uh, the ladder, the capitalist ladder, starting at the bottom, and uh, <clears throat> was the way to go for creating wealth and equality through work. I'll leave it there. <laughs> Liz. Hi, um, I'm, and I'm not muted. Um, I'm Liz Morey. I'm also class of 1963 and uh, very, very happy to be here and hope that I, I'm a clinical psychologist, uh, practically fully retired, and I live in <clears throat> Maryland outside of D.C., but I'm a Californian and nobody better take that away from me. Um, and uh, I hope to not be terminally depressed by the end of the hour. <laughs> okay, welcome, Thank Ada. Thank you for joining Thank us. And welcome. Tell us about your book, your life, et cetera. All yours. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. I'm normally based in Harlem, New York City. Uh, right now I'm in Italy, but I'm, I'm teaching in the economics department at the new school, which, as you know, is one of the few places where there is a possibility of um, studying and, and, and teaching um, Marxian, classical political Marxian or classical political economy, to put it more broadly. And uh, so the, the, this book is actually, which I have here with me, you probably already saw the cover, it's here, The Capital Order, um, is really the product of uh, many, many years of work. I started working on this um, during my PhD, that, which I did in Italy. I have a background in philosophy, so I did my uh, BA and MA in philosophy uh, in Pavia. Mm -hmm. And then um, I, I was lucky or unlucky enough, it depends, uh, uh, from from the points of view, but I was I had a, a class in the history of economic thought, so I got very involved in reading Smith, Ricardo, Marx, and so uh, this professor of mine really believed in me, and he was like, "You should apply for a PhD in economics." And I thought it was going to be, you know, reading the classics, really getting to know how capitalism works. And then I realized quickly after having gotten into the PhD in economics, which I did in Pisa, that. Um, economic theory was doing exactly the opposite rather than explaining it was actually trying to conceal how our economic system worked uh, through very abstract ideological models and so at that point I, I passed all the exams because I wanted to prove that a philosopher could um, still uh, uh, you know uh, prove herself uh, in mathematics statistics uh, and so on but then I was very depressed because I didn't really find anything that they were studying interesting or intellectually stimulating. But then I encountered an article that was on, uh, on uh, fascist economic policies. And that's when uh, I realized how close uh, they were to the world I was living, because I, it was um, this was uh, 2013. We were right in the midst of Mario Monti's uh, austerity wave after the Troika had basically uh, kicked out uh, Berlusconi. Uh, who wasn't great, but at least, you know, he was someone elected and so kind of uh, wasn't going to give in to just uh, privatizing and um, deregulating the labor market as Mario Monti did. And so at that point, I got interested and I started digging into fascist economic policies. And I realized that it was a very understudied um, 
as Alison put it, very understudied also by scholars, um, fascism and eco fascism, fascist economics. And that's how slowly I got into archival work. And finally, the New School really gave me the theoretical framework um, to uh, give, I think, finally, after so many years, almost 10, birth to a book in historical political economy. And so here I am. The book has uh, has actually caught a lot of attention. So it makes me very happy because I think it is a moment in which there's thirst for a different <clears throat> narrative about the past that thus can give us a different narrative about the present and the future. I'm lucky enough to come from, a, my parents are university professors uh, who are public employees in Italy. So I wasn't, you know, feeling the full hardship of austerity on my own skin but of course as a student in public university you saw what it meant in terms of also just cutting public education but I was very um, upset about the type of uh, the the, the um, what's the word the, this basically the, the the way the debate around austerity was shaped the debate around austerity was shaped in a way that really uh didn't make me happy because it was really depoliticized. So we had those economists who were in favor of austerity, who were uh, advocating, of course, the idea of um, uh, expansionary austerity. So the idea that we sacrifice now, but really austerity is all, it's going to provide growth. Right. So the idea that the typical trickle down economics that you guys are familiar with. But then there were the critics of austerity who I think had suffered from the same problem of understanding austerity as a fundamentally just a toolbox, a technical toolbox to manage the economy. So the problem at that point was just that in their minds, austerity was bad theory that was informing bad policy, which was bringing about the opposite of what it should have. Namely, it was supposedly bringing about growth and, uh, you know, um, uh, better budgets, but actually what you saw was that it was not helping pay back the debt and economic growth. So it must have been some sort of madness, right? So if you guys uh, read the book of Mark Blythe, uh, and I, I respect him a lot as a scholar, but I think he kind of embodies the idea that austerity can only be explained as madness. And this for me was a problem because it didn't really explain why it was so resilient and why it kept emerging. And actually, and here is like the strong thesis of my book, why austerity is in the very DNA of capitalism. Um, fundamentally, I am against speaking about neoliberalism, and this goes to your point, Gerald. Uh, go, I'm against the idea of just focusing on neoliberalism as the problem, uh, because I think it gives a sense that there is a possible humane capitalism uh, that um, has been applied uh, and is the norm. So we are kind of in the exception of neoliberalism, but you know, it's enough even to go back and look at, um, you know, you see also progressives in America right now, they're advocating for, for a Green New Deal, a new Bretton Woods, this kind of idealization of these supposed golden years, um, which were, can be um, brought back into light and kind of, show us virtuous capitalism. I think there's a fundamental problem here, and it's a problem of idealizing the history of, uh, of our economic system and not understanding its logic. So the idea here is that actually austerity is crucial for the very protection and preservation of capitalism as a whole. 
Um, so, and in this sense, what you're saying is, I would agree in the sense that I, it is a radical critique of the capital order. Um, mm -hmm. why, why do I call it the capital order? It sounds like a weird title, um, uh, but I can explain it. And it actually is very important to understand the thesis of, of the book. So um, the capital order, why this title? Well, the idea here is, and it's not my idea, it came out of, uh, you know, if you read Marx's Capital, that's kind of the whole point of his critique to political economy. Um, the idea is that capital as wealth, as money invested to make more money, which is ultimately the objective of our economic system. Um, so this capital as a commodity presupposes and requires capital as a social relation. Capital as uh, the way we have accepted to organize society which is based on the fact that the majority of us um, is forced in order to make a living, in order to eat, sleep, get uh, education, get cured when they're sick, uh, to sell one's labor power in return for a wage. So fundamentally, the fact that we do depend on the market, we do depend on money, makes it such that we um, depend on the fact that we need to have money in our pockets and thus go and sell our labor power on the market. And uh, of course, this means structural exploitation in the sense that structurally we are paid much less than what we, the value we produce. Um, so this capital as a social relation, the fact that the majority of us in this economic system are wage workers. We do not have, um, except very rare exceptions, we do not have control over our, the activity we perform and the output. Uh, we 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 give out. Well, this um, capital is not something natural. It came out historically. It, it's a it process of collective action, as I, as I said in the book, and so it constantly needs protection. Um, and what austerity does is fundamentally protect capital as the social relation from any um, contestation, from any. Um, demand for so for radical social change um so it preserves capital uh in the face of any alternative way of organizing society and uh, so this is fundamentally the main thesis is that if we stop depoliticizing austerity as keynesians do okay the keynesians the supposed critiques of austerity only have the sense that austerity is madness i want to say austerity is not madness uh, there is a lot of method in the madness and this method in the madness is exactly the fact that with the cost of economic downturn, exactly what we see today, actually, it's very interesting how what I describe in the book is exactly what we're living through right now. The cost of an economic downturn is for economists a minimal short-term cost for a much longer-term gain which is the preservation of capitalism as a socioeconomic system. Why? Well, because it subordinates citizens, workers, into accepting their condition as wage workers. Um, I can just make an example of what's going on today. I think it's interesting. I talk about exactly what was happening 100 years ago, but it's so obvious if you read the... That's the whole point of this book is to read the past and have the lens of the historian can help 
also understand critically what's happening now. And it is clear, for example, right now that monetary austerity in the form of the Fed increasing interest rates and not just the Fed, all banks around the globe, including the Indian Central Bank, um, um, is increasing interest rate now for, it's been increasing interest rate now for almost six months, right? Um, Powell said that clearly, um, it's gonna, there's gonna, this is going to mean sacrifice and it's going to be mean an economic downturn. And actually I was reading the Financial Times today, we're saying 80% of economists, mainstream economists, predict there's gonna be an economic downturn in the United States next year. So they basically are increasing interest rates with the knowledge that this is going to screw the economy over. So is this just pure irrationality? Is this like self-inducing recession, just pure madness? Or how can we explain it? Well, you cannot explain it unless you understand that this, there's a political project, that this is not just technical jargon in the hands of experts, but it's actually clear, and this is not just me saying it, it's actually the experts themselves making it very clear, if you read someone like Larry Summers today, that an economic recession is necessary in order to increase the unemployment rate. Right now, it's at three point six percent. It's uh, they predict it's going to go up by at least to four point seven percent. And someone like Larry Summers is telling us we need unemployment rate to seven percent in order for the labor market to run smoothly again. In order to have an efficient labor market, we need higher unemployment. And why is he saying this? Well, because we are in a moment in which there is a challenge to the capital order. How? Maybe less organized and radical than the years I describe in my book. So I look at the revolutionary years after the First World War, um, 1919, 1920, which in which strikes, workers' councils, there was literal upheaval and questioning of the capital order, and we can get into it. But today, there is spontaneous rebellion. How? Well, the huge phenomenon of the great resignation. It's very real in the United States. There is a labor shortage and economists are really scared because if there's labor shortage, labor shortage means that there's more labor demand than labor supply. This means that workers have the upper hand. In fact, nominal wages are rising even if we know they're not keeping up with inflation, but the point is that the cost of labor is going up and this is affecting profits. And worse than this, not only wages are going up, people are just saying, you know what? We're not going back to work for a crappy wage. That's just not happening. And people are just pulling out of the labor force. Um, there's a huge anti-work movement in the United States right now, especially amongst younger generations. And this is a form of questioning, of deep questioning of the capital order. People saying we need to figure out a way to make a living that is not just about going and getting exploited in precarious conditions for a low wage. It's just not worth the bargain, right? Um, and this has, of course, we can also see how the fact that the state gave very little money during the COVID crisis um, has actually increased <laughs> the political imagination of the many in saying, listen, if the state can give us money when there's a COVID pandemic, why can't it just give us money for us to make a living? So you see that the consensus of the fact that it's natural 
that we have to go and get exploited for a wage is crumbling and experts are very scared. And so austerity is the most intelligent political tool to get workers back into accepting capitalism as the only way forward. And this is fundamentally what we saw after the First World War, which is the historical epoch I described. And it's, I think, what we're seeing exactly now, because some of the Larry Summers knows it and is very lucid about it. He's like, we need to make sure that people go back to work and work for a lower wage. How do you do that? Well, you increase unemployment. Why? Well, unemployment is going to increase the disciplinary mechanism of the market forces, right? The impersonal laws of the market. No one's forcing us to go to work, but if we don't, we just don't have money to live off, right? So this is very important. And this is basically the thesis of the book, that austerity is the best disciplinary mechanism to have us all live with the motto, consume less, produce more. And at my claim, and this is going to be substantiated with the next book I'm going to write, which is going to be about the so-called golden age, is that they, there cannot be capitalism unless the majority is forced into living with the motto of austerity, consume less, produce more. And experts protect capital as the social order via austerity. And this is a necessity for capitalism. We have a lot of hands up, so maybe I can. I appreciate your thesis, and I think I agree with your thesis, and I think I'm going to go out and get your book. Um, I guess my question is, I'm assuming that you are proposing some um, some ways out, some alternatives, some uh, equitable uh, distribution of wealth. And um, I, I would be very interested in hearing what some of those alternatives are and how we might uh, think about them and be able to uh, work towards them in our daily lives. Thank you. David, Lillaville. Um, what you say is very, very stimulating, but it goes against some of the things that I've uh, thought in the past. Uh, one thing is the uh, short-term versus long-term um, yeah. uh, issue of... Uh, uh, profit. And uh, it uh, seems to me a lot of uh, uh, business, certainly in things like real estate and, and, and so on, are concerned primarily with short-term profit to make uh, money quickly and then move out, yeah. uh, make money yeah. uh, in one country and then move to the next where labor is uh, cheaper. Um, so the uh, incentives uh, are often toward uh, short term. The other thing is the issue of consumption uh, and uh, the uh, no. huge amount of, uh, of the economy, which is uh, <clears throat> devoted to get people to buy things, um, yeah. which one might say are uh, private entertainment or something like that, as opposed to public good. Uh, so uh, particularly in the United States, mm -hmm. even in comparison uh, uh, to Europe, um, uh, much less money is uh, spent on on public uh, good, like public transportation and, of course, medical uh, medical uh, uh, yeah. and on, uh, um, for example, um, uh, 
what's a good example of uh, uh, useless consumption? But anyway, <laughs> we can all think of, of, of something or other. So those are two questions that uh, sort of bounce up against uh, what, what you've been saying. Yeah. I'd like you to discuss, if you would, the, uh, the effect of the militarization of the capitalist economy and what, what effect does that have on the, on the uh, system where we have uh, tremendous outlays for increasing outlays for, for a military uh, and to make, to make profits through military investment and how that affects the ideology and, uh, and fascism, how it's related. Yeah. Okay, great. Okay. So I'll, I'll address this question in um, also trying to give you a sense of what the book is about. Okay, good. Um, uh, so um, to the first, uh, the last question, uh, let me define austerity and, um, and discuss where also military spending fits in it, in the definition. So um, when the, uh, the attempt, the theoretical attempt, so basically, the book looks at a specific historical moment, exactly 100 years ago, the effect of the First World War in politicizing capitalism and austerity as a reaction to these alternatives emerging. But I also have, of course, this theoretical framework that uh, kind of informs what I discuss, um, in which I also give a new definition of austerity with respect to what you usually understand the term to mean. So uh, normally when economists discuss austerity, they always think only about uh, state expenditures and they look at it in the aggregate, right? So austerity is just cuts in the budget. That's usually what happens. Uh, this is usually what we, the common sense understanding. So I try to, again, repoliticize austerity how? Um, by understanding austerity, first of all, as a trinity. Um, so not just fiscal austerity, but as fiscal monetary and industrial austerity. And when we look at fiscal austerity, not looking at expenditures in the aggregate, because if we look at expenditures in the aggregate, for example, the United States right now, the United States right now, if you look at the whole budget, they've been spending a lot more, especially where? Well, especially in the military, right, right now. So it's interesting because if you look at the aggregate, you wouldn't be saying, well, uh, the United States are undergoing austerity again. But if you actually look at where the money is spent, then we see how austerity is kind of structural to the American, and not just American, also Italian, European, and global economy. How? Well, because money are constantly shifted away from the many into the hands of the few. So if you look at the budget, what happened is that while there is a lot more spending in the military, there is structural defunding of social services, right? So austerity is about cutting in, not in general, cutting in the social sector. And why is this important? Well, because if you cut in the social sector, you increase the market dependence of people. Okay, and it goes also to the question that uh, David was posing about uh, public consumption and private consumption. You increase the market dependence of people in the sense that what what before you were entitled to as a citizen, for example, school. Now you got to go and work to pay for your education. So the precariousness 
of the people increases. And if you increase precariousness, you also structurally increase their, necessa their necessary acceptance for the systems. Because it's very hard to protest capitalism when you depend on capitalism for your survival. And this is why it's very important to constantly privatize. So another big component of austerity is privatization, which I put into the industrial austerity part, right? You privatize so that you increase market dependence, plus you increase competition amongst workers. Because public employees, we know that public employees are those who have the best benefits. And economists tell you very clearly that if public employees increase the bar, this is no good. So you need to fire public employees, exactly what Mussolini did in the 1920s. He fired 65,000 public employees in one go as soon as he came into power in 1922. This was very important because as someone like Alezina today would say, you lower the reservation wage of the whole economy because people are competing with one another for lower wages. Okay, so... This is the first important part of the to understand what I'm talking about in the book is that austerity is not just about cutting expenditures in general. It's about cutting social expenditure, one, and it's about where you get your, the money. So fiscal austerity is both how you spend, and again, you're spending away from the people, right? Because if you cut social expenditures to pay back the debt, well, get what? guess what? If you're paying back the debt, this means that money is going in the hands of the financial institutions and of the creditors of society. And creditors of society are the wealthy few, okay? So structural shifting of resources from the many to the few. Then it's about where you get the money, fiscal austerity, right? So the state is, a, the state. what does the state do? The state spends and the state takes in a revenue. And this goes also to the first question about the role of the state. The state is fundamental for capitalism, right? Uh, in my book, uh, I uh, part of it uh, is, of course, going against this ridiculous dichotomy of the state and the market. The state and the market are not opposing institutions. They're institutions mm -hmm. that require one another, right? So the state mm -hmm. makes its revenue, how? Through taxes. <clears throat> And taxes structurally depend on capital accumulation because they depend on private activity. But what's important about austerity is that austerity is about structural regressive taxation. So it's about taxing the rich less than the workers. So what is austerity? Austerity is increasing consumption taxes. Consumption taxes in the United States are high. And guess what? They hit everyone the same. So you can be Jeff Bezos or Starbucks worker. You're getting taxed the same for the bread or the tobacco you buy. Okay. So consumption tax is a typical austerity measure. Uh, another austerity measure is, of course, the allergy we have in, in the United States and all over the world for taxing the rich, right? The fact that corporate taxes have structurally decreased. So in my introduction, I actually have the numbers. A larger share of tax revenue drawn from consumption taxes, which are shared across the society, paired with exorbitant tax cuts across top income brackets. 91% during Eisenhower's presidency, 1953, 1961, 37% in, as of 2021, as well as the reduction in capital gain taxes and corporate taxes. The Trump administration lowered the latter in 2017 from 35% 
to 21%, a remarkable <clears throat> shift from the 50% rates in the 1970s. Okay, so while wages in the United States have been stagnant for decades, now for the first time in history, the country's richest 400 families pay a lower overall tax rate than any other income group. Okay, so regressive taxation is, is a very important component of austerity. Then we have monetary austerity, which is increases in interest rates, uh, making money dear, which is exactly what we've been seeing now uh, for many months now. Uh, and then there's industrial austerity. And industrial austerity is a direct attack on organized labor. So, of course, attacks on unions, privatization, and also wage repression and labor deregulation. So labor deregulation has been, a again, a feature that we don't even see in the American society anymore because it's so obvious everywhere, right? Uh, now we even have, uh, we have even forms of like, serious kind of labor, um, not even capitalist forms of coercion on the workers in these um, in these forms of, of the fact that you can't even leave your work without the permission uh, of your of your of your employ employer. If you work for McDonald's, you can't just leave and go work for uh, Burger King because you can get sued. Okay, this is the lever of the deregulation and the attack on the employee's side that has been going on. Okay. So for me, this is very important. It's this trinity. Austerity is this trinity, but it's also the theory that justifies this constant shift of resources from the many to the few. Okay. So austerity as a form of praxis, as uh, about economic policy, which is pushed forward and justified by a strong economic theory. So my book basically speaks about the origins of austerity, both as a policy and as a theory, to explain its logic today. And what's important here is that the theory that backs austerity is the mainstream economic theory that was really born at the end of the 1800s. So what people study, probably you guys as well at Harvard, um, in, uh, if you take any micro or macro class, is the neoclassical mainstream economic theory, okay? Imbued with some form of Keynesianism, but anyway, it's new Keynesianism, so it's neoclassical. This neoclassical theory, unlike what uh, one usually thinks uh, if one takes a class in economics, is not the only one out there, right? It's not the only theory possible. It's not synonymous with economics. Um, the neoclassical framework is a specific paradigm that emerges uh, at the end of the 1800s, right? The beginning of the 20th century, basically. And this is, it emerges exactly with the diffusion of austerity. So this is important that my, my book also tells the story of the coming into dominance of the mainstream economic theory. And why is this important? Well, it's very important because it also goes back to what you guys were suggesting. Um, it's a type of theory that takes away agency from workers and puts it all in the hands of individual savers, investors, the entrepreneur, the virtuous entrepreneur as the new engine to understand economic growth. So fundamentally, at, at the turn of the 20th century, what you see is that the 
paradigm which was typical of Smith, Ricardo, and Marx of class conflict and workers as being the source of economic value, right? Uh, surplus deriving out of work, wage work, and conflict among classes, right? It was normal for theorists to understand that capitalism is about trade-offs. There's losers and winners, and this is how economic growth works under capitalism. Not everyone gains, okay? The new economic model is actually all about removing classes, removing conflict, and seeing only individuals who harmoniously work with one another, in which the entrepreneur is actually virtuous enough to guarantee hiring workers who are now considered parasites and lazy. And the reason why they're still workers is because they have not been virtuous enough to save and invest and become an entrepreneur. Now, this seems like stupid stuff, but it's imbued in the economic models. And this is, for me, very important to understand austerity as a theory that in boosts our passive consent for the economic system we're in. We all think that if we're poor, it's because we deserve it. And this is no, not by chance, it's because of the type of economic theory that informs not only economic models that then go and inform public policy, but also common sense in general through all the ways in which economic theories actually you know, spread through various oh. channels of society. So the power of the economic expert is something that is a very important theme of my book. How economic experts achieve economic power, achieve ideological power, and are able to discipline us all in thinking that ultimately this is the best possible world we are in. So importantly with this idea of, you were mentioning the idea of like short-term profit. Um, and so the fact that, you know, obviously if one has a political economy lens, like the one I do, you realize that it's in the nature of capital that it doesn't matter what you invest in. What matters is the gain. And the quicker the gain, the better, right? Um, so, this type of analysis that looks at the structural, um, let's say, they're not externalities, even if mainstream economists call them externalities. They're kind of the fact that there's a clear social devastation that is part of how capitalism functions. This is removed in the austerity doctrine because you think of profit as only something virtuous that will help everyone else, right? So this theory helps conceal helps hide how capitalism works. And this is very, very important. And economists really realized how important it was to hide everything that you are mentioning. So the fact that there's clearly short-term profits that are against kind of like long-term foresight, they, they give you a good, different model. They'll tell you the entrepreneur always has the best foresight and everyone else should just follow. So for me, this is important. Now, um, maybe I can spend a couple of minutes and then I'll go back to maybe addressing some specifics of the question, but a couple of minutes to tell you a little bit about my um, historical work, if that's okay. Yeah, please. Um, yeah. Okay, great. So I just kind of define what austerity is, this trinity as a policy backed by a specific theory. Now, why do I focus on what happened exactly 100 years ago? The idea is that 
a hundred years ago, after the First World War, capitalism underwent its greatest existential crisis. It was a moment in which there was the structural questioning, spread questioning throughout not just Eastern Europe, I focus on Western Europe. I focus on Western Europe and I specifically focus on the parallel stories of Britain and Italy. And what I show is that after the First World War, um, capital was shaping, shaking, sorry, shaking. Capital was shaking. The capital order was no longer sturdy. And all these alternatives to how we could run societies were emerging. So uh, Liz had the question about the alternatives that I was suggesting. And I would say that rather than, um, for me, the first part of the book, the first part of the capital order is about all about reconstructing the novel ideas for a different society that was triggered by the First World War. So I show how with the First World War, this massive intervention of the state in order to run the war economy, going back to the question of militarism and the role of the state, in order to win the war, this great war, there was a shock to laissez-faire capitalism that had been basically unquestioned for the 200 years prior. With the war effort, there was came war collectivism. The state took on the main role as producer and employer, and this shook the pillars of capitalism, which are private property of the means of production and wage relations. Why did they shake? Well, because they repoliticized the fact that the state intervened made it obvious to citizens that these pillars were no natural givens, but they were the outcome of clear classist choices coming from the part of the state itself. Anyway, the whole point here is that the first part of the book for me has a life of its own because it's all about how the First World War produced a variety of alternatives to our current society. And these alternatives went from more reconstructionist, so reformist understandings, but these reforms basically were triggering more social desire for change, which came into the form of calls for economic democracy as such. So the abolition of wage relations, right? The abolition of the capital order. And I look at many cases. I look at the Guild Socialist in Britain. I look at the case of the Sankey Committee, which was all about nationalizing coal and self-management of workers. And I look at the council movement, which was big in Britain with the shop stewards, but was explicitly big in Italy with the occupation of the factories in 1920s in which, and this is a very important for chapter four of the book, I talk about the experiment of Gramsci with L'Ordine Nuovo. So the new order, L'Ordine Nuovo was a magazine. It was a militant effort to organize workers through councils. So the idea that we were organizing production and distribution of resources collectively, okay? So here the idea of breaching the... Uh, bourgeois farce of political democracy by saying there cannot be political democracy unless there's really economic democracy. So I have a whole chapter that is devoted 
uh, to the brilliant ideas of the L'Ordine Nuovo movement, which was based in Turin and it was had its peak in 1919-1920, in which people were realizing that in order to really achieve a democratic society, you needed democratic processes in production and distribution of resources. So the idea of networks that could start at the level of, of the factory and could spread throughout society. In Italy, in that moment, we had the occupation of agricultural land as, as well. There was a big uh, uh, amount of land that peasants had seized to run on their own. So I can't get into the details because uh, we're already running out of time. But the point here is that there's a lot of alternatives that had been have been hidden by historians themselves. This is what I question. The historian plays a very conservative role often because it hides alternatives by using the benefit of hindsight, by saying, now that we saw that everything failed, I'm going to tell you how weak these alternatives were because they failed. But guess what? If you go and take seriously the spirit of the time, which is what I tried to do in the capital order, you see that in 1919-1920, everyone from the bourgeoisie to the last worker were convinced capitalism was going to collapse in a matter of a few years. And this was not in Russia or in Hungary or in the East Europe. We were talking about the hub of capitalism in the West, in Italy and, the, uh, and Britain. Now, what happened then? Well, of course, and this is the story I tell, is that in this flourishing of varieties of alternatives to capitalism, a powerful reaction emerged. And this powerful reaction is what the capital order reconstructs in the second part of the, the second part of the book is all about austerity as this project of counteraction to abolish any possibility for social change. And how did this happen? Well, it happened via the fact that the state mm -hmm. hired experts to work at the, basically at using the dials of macroeconomic management to defeat the workers who had gained um, um, greater say after the First World War. And why do I choose Britain and Italy? I choose these two countries because I like the parallelism. For me, this is a very important message of the book, is that if we look at the hub of liberalism, Britain, right? The oldest parliamentary democracy, the empire and the democratic parliamentary democracy, the cradle of liberalism. And we compare it with what was happening under fascist Italy in the 1920s. So the birthplace of fascism, what you see is that there is not so much difference in terms of the type of treatment the British state and the Italian state were, were giving to their own citizens, which was fundamentally harsh sacrifice in the name of returning to the status quo before the war, private market capitalism. So this is a message that I talk about how, of course, in Italy, what happened is that Mussolini hired experts directly. And these economists who were the novel uh, mainstream, the pure economics, the new paradigm emerging, they couldn't believe it because they could use this supposed apolitical theory, right? The idea that economics, for the first time, economics was emerging as an apolitical, hard 
science like any other hard science, right? The idea that we expel the political from the doctrine, right? So the neutrality, the beyond class bias of the expert. Well, these experts who are supposedly beyond class bias and supposedly neutral were undertaking the biggest classist policies of all through austerity. So I play with this idea of the emergence of a, a, a paradigm of, in economics that calls itself technical and uh, at the same level of any other natural science, of course, and this is still true today, hardcore positivism in economics that went hand in hand with the support of a fascist dictatorship um, that was massacring its own population. And what you see here is that Britain not only was doing the same with, with their own citizens, Right, that through not necessarily through the coercion of the fascist state, but through what we see still today, through the economic downturn. The economic downturn silenced the workers in Britain in 1920. They they were completely defeated because of the recession that was induced in 1921 through increases in interest rates and cuts in social expenditures primarily. So not only you see the same treatment, what you also see, and this is the last thing I want to say before I can answer a couple of questions, mm -hmm. is that you also see that liberals, the liberal elite, both in Italy and in America and, the, and in Britain, were extremely happy of Benito Mussolini. So this explains the subtitle of the book, which is how economists invented austerity and paved the way to, to fascism is that what I mean by paved the way to fascism is that fascism was strengthened, was justified internationally. And monetary stability is a real problem for capitalism because it, it's a system based on uh, stable money. If you don't have stable money, you can't really have capitalism. And guess what? If people start consuming, um, inflation kicks in, right? And so what you need to do is keep lower wages. That's the, this is actually the explanation economists give. You have to avoid the wage push and keep wages down so that necessarily you curtail consumption. So even if we're meant to think that, oh, abundance is the goal of capitalism and consumerism is like a big deal. Actually, if you really look deep enough, we are in a system in which only the elite can really spend. The rest can't. Otherwise, we like screw the fundamentals of the system. And this, this is something that even Keynesians mm. see. Keynesian economists realize very well, and this is what I talk about in my book, is like Ralph Hawtrey, who is uh, one of the protagonists in my story, who influenced the Chicago school, but also Keynes, had developed this overconsumptionist model. For him, inflation was a result of overconsumption. Not overconsumption of the elite, but overconsumption of the workers who all of a sudden had more to spend because wages had gone up during the war. And this was the reason why there was such a high inflation for him after the First World War and the reason why you needed austerity. So thank right, you well, for having me. Thank here. you so much. It was really great. We'll have to have you back. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And um, I also I'm going to read Kent's book because it's on my reading list oh, and I can't good, wait. Good. Uh, Last you. Negro. All right. I really want to read it. So okay, I'm really bye -bye. looking forward to it. So maybe we'll have a chance to exchange ideas soon. All right. Bye. Thank, thank you. Bye-bye. That was Clara Mattei. Her new book is titled The Capital Order, How Economists Invented Austerity and Paved the Way to Fascism. And that's it for this episode of The Last Negroes at Harvard. 
I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast, which you can find on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, or from wherever you get your podcast. Our podcast also stream on WIOXradio.org every Thursday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Time. Plus, you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard.